Production support for Noon Edition comes from Smithville. Fiber Internet, streaming TV, home security, and automation in southern Indiana. More information at smithville.com. And from Integrity First Insurance, provider of Erie Insurance for all your auto, home, life, and business insurance needs. More information at 812-269-8897 or integrityfirstinsuranceservices.com. And from Bloomington Health Foundation, partnering with local organizations and citizens to invest in programs that address our community's health needs. Bloomington Health Foundation, improving health and well-being takes a community. More at bloomhf.org. Welcome to Noon Edition on WFIU. I'm your host, Bob Zetsberg. My co-host today is Sarah Whitmire, the News Bureau Chief of WFIU and WTIU, and we are talking with guests about the 20th anniversary of the September 11th terrorist attacks. The events are the deadliest terrorist attacks in U.S. history, and those who experienced or witnessed them say that it changed their lives forever. We're going to talk with three guests today. Jim Boer, past director of administrative services, the IU O'Neill School of Public and Environmental Affairs. Boer was in the Pentagon on 9-11 with a group of Crane uh, employees. Greg Gates is with us. He is deputy fire marshal for Lawrence Fire Department. Gates is, was deployed to Ground Zero in New York as a member of the Indiana Task Force One. And Daniel Orr, the chef and owner of Farm Bloomington, he was living in New York City on 9-11. He has some memories of that day. If you have questions or comments, you can send them to us at news at indianapublicmedia.org. You can also follow us on Twitter at Noon Edition. We're still not back in the studio. We hope to be soon, but with um, COVID raging the way it is, it's hard to say when we'll be able to get back in the studio to be able to take some calls. Thank you all for being here today. Um, I want to start by talking about what happened in New York and then move on to the Pentagon. We don't have anybody here to talk about what happened in the field in Pennsylvania, but that was the other place where a jetliner went down. So let's talk about, let's, let's start with New York and talk with Daniel Orr, the uh, chef owner of Farm Bloomington. Uh, Daniel, what were you doing at the time? Well, it was um, pretty much the pinnacle of my, my career in New York. I had opened up Guascovino Restaurant, uh, which was a 700-seat huge project by Terrence Conrad. And we had just had, the night before, we had had our first year anniversary and had celebrated that. So I was a little bit uh, maybe hungover the next morning. And uh, our HR uh, department called me and told me, um, you know, we're going to be close today and asked why. And... Uh, uh, my my friend there, Christopher Malm, he said, turn on your TV. I did so and saw what had happened. And I had actually bought a place on 42nd Street, a penthouse apartment. I had a rooftop garden. So I ran up the little spiral staircase and I actually saw the second plane hit hit the tower. And, um, you know, from there, it, you know, we didn't know what to do, what was happening. Um, we knew it wasn't a, an accident. And... Um, then I started calling my friends who lived down that area and wasn't able to get a hold of anybody and finally started touching base with some of my friends whose apartments had actually gotten destroyed. And uh, they st they were walking up and, you know, I ended up holding people, helping people in my house, um, you know, stay for a few days until we could arrange things. And I had boyfriends of other people riding their bicycles down from Connecticut to, to see, make sure that everybody's okay. And, um, you know, it was a, a day that really changed my life. And, um, you know, I've just recently been going through some, some emotional trauma and that definitely came up, uh, in the therapy I was going through and, um, it just changed, changed my whole life. We'll get back to some of the details and some of the ways it's uh, it's still affecting you. I wanted to bring in Greg Gates. I know you went to Ground Zero. So when, where were you when you heard about what had happened? I was working at Indianapolis Fire Station 7, and we, like most of America, 
or watching it on TV. Uh, I got a call from my wife uh, as she was watching it as well and asked uh, after the second plane had hit if they were going to activate our task force and send us. And at that time, I told her, no, I didn't think so, that uh, New York Fire Department has a lot of firefighters. They'll be able to handle this. And as time went on uh, and the buildings fell, I got another phone call from her. And uh, the call came in just as the second building fell. And uh, I said, well, I, I don't know if, uh, if we're going to be deployed or not. And then the call came in uh, on the department line we call the Centrex. And they said that we had been activated and to pack a bag and report to the staging area. Greg, as a firefighter, what were, what were your thoughts when you saw the, those high-rise buildings that were, you know, that were burning and knowing the firefighters were in there? You know, what, what were your thoughts? Well, as, as I was talking to my wife, I said they have enough firefighters to handle this, but I feared that uh, with the size of fire that was there, that it may end up killing some of the firefighters. And unfortunately, way more than I would have ever have imagined. We'll get back to New York here in uh, a few minutes. Uh, we've got a, close to an hour that we're going to try to cover as much as we can. But I want to bring Jim Boer in because Jim was in the Pentagon on that day. Jim, can you tell us what you were doing there? Uh, sure. I was working with Indiana University, and we had a contract with the Crane Naval Weapons uh, Support Center to provide some uh, executive education. Uh, we actually had a what we call the Public Management Certificate Program that we were had offered. Um, and we were working with engineers and, uh, and uh, professional people from Crane. Uh, this course, this uh, uh, certificate was five courses. Uh, the first four courses, we would actually do the work uh, in Indianapolis. Uh, we'd uh, give them some reading materials, have them come to Indianapolis for a week, and then uh, uh, write a paper on that. The fifth week of that, we called a lab course where we took these employees from Crane to Washington, D.C. And uh, each week out there, we would... Uh, we had to start the same format. We would Monday would be a, a day the instructor would tell them who they were going to see that week, why they were seeing and why they were important to them. Tuesday we'd go to the Pentagon, and uh, there we'd talk to the controller of the Navy. We would talk to various admirals and people involved in their uh, their area. So they get the military perspective. Wednesday we would go to Capitol Hill, talk to the House and Senate Armed Services Committees, uh, a few other uh, individuals. Get the congressional perspective. Uh, Thursday was in the old executive building, part of the White House, where we would talk to the Office of Management and Budget, the National Security Agency. And then Friday was wrap-up. So they really have a, a broad experience in D.C. and how things affected them. So this Tuesday was no different. And uh, uh, we were going to spend uh, Tuesday in the Pentagon. And uh, uh, that morning, uh, we had taken the bus from the hotel uh, it was a little bit late, but we took the bus to the Pentagon. So while we were on the bus is when everything else happened. So we knew nothing of what was going on. Uh, we got to the Pentagon that morning, got into the building, and uh, the first meeting we had was with the Undersecretary of the Navy, uh, Honorable Susan Livingstone. And she is the first one that told us, uh, as we had met with her to start with, that she had to cut her program short because uh, of the terrorist attack uh, on the World Trade Center. So that was the first time we had heard anything about it or knew anything about it. So that's why I was there with the, uh, the crane class for any sort of executive education program and uh, the public management certificate. Now, you weren't just in the Pentagon, but you were basically, uh, as it turned out, you were within um, yards of where the plane actually hit. Yes, the, uh, the section of the Pentagon we were in uh, uh, was uh, the first first section of the Pentagon that they had decided to remodel to strengthen it in case of any kind of a terrorist attack. So um, the, the, the section we went into was uh, uh, really hadn't opened yet. A few people had moved in. I think they said that in that, that quadrant or that, uh, that, that wedge, 
maybe 700 people were there working where normally there would have been 5,000. Um, but the section we went into, the uh, conference room, uh, we later found out was, because the plane came in and took out floors one and two, we were on floor five, probably about 50 feet um, from where the plane actually uh, came into the building. So, yes, we were we were very close. All right. We're going to talk more about uh, your harrowing escape, and it truly was harrowing um, in a little bit. But I want to go back to, to New York now and, and bring in uh, Daniel Orr again. And, and Daniel, you know, we've seen lots of – Lots of pictures of what was going on that day, the the great clouds of dust, uh, the people on the streets um, not really knowing what was going on. I mean, you you described how, you know, you had a lot of people coming to where you were. Um, can you sort of, you know, take us there, take us to that day and, and what it was like for you? Well, my apartment was um, in Hell's Kitchen, which, if you don't know, that's um, kind of lower midtown. Um, and it's right by the Intrepid Museum. So, you know, there's, it's a, it's a wide, uh, wide street, and um, I live, live between 10th and 11th, so it was easy for people to walk up the, you know, the, the riverside of the island, and um, they did, you know, my friends arrived with dust on their faces and in their hair, and um, with, you know, fright and, and anxiety and you know, all those things. And, um, you know, we got them washed up and, you know, some of them ended up sleeping in my pajamas, which were pretty much too big for most of them. <laughs> but, uh, you know, we, we tried to, to take care of each other the best we could, um, you know, and then, like I said, other people came in from, you know, New Jersey and, and uh, Connecticut to check on their friends, mostly riding bikes. And, you know, the whole subway system was closed down because one of the biggest hubs is right down there at, uh, at uh, where the Twin Towers stood. And so, you know, it forced people to walk most places. But I think everything just closed down. And, you know, it was such a, such a big thing that I think really internalized, um, you know, a lot of, lot of my, my emotional future. I, I'm curious, you know, what do you do in that, in that moment? What, how did you, you know, what did you, how did you know what to do with yourself? Cause like you said, everything's closed down. It's not like you go to work. Right. Right. Yeah. Well, um, you know, it does put you in kind of a hyper stressful mode, you know, gives you that, uh, fight or flight kind of feeling. And, you know, I turned that uh, into taking care of people and trying to, uh, to, to help other people calm down. And sometimes I, I do that a little too much and it adds, you know, a lot of that kind of caregiver strain on, on me, which I'm, you know, learning how to deal with. But um, uh, it, it was amazing. I, and it, it also kind of turned the city into a bunch of small villages. It was no longer Manhattan. It was, you know, the West Village, the Lower East Side, uh, Midtown, Hell's Kitchen, Upper East Side. And you kind of stayed in that little village and ate at those restaurants and shopped at those markets and um, there's a lot more eye contact on the street and people just kind of sharing much more emotion um, even you know nonverbal uh, on the streets of New York which normally is a place where everybody no one looks at anybody in the eyes um, only tourists look up at the buildings and uh, you know it, it really changed the whole feeling of the city and it what became a much more caring place and people actually were much more like midwesterners um and that you know say, saying hello to people you don't know in the grocery store uh, you know all those kind of things but for me i was working in this huge restaurant um that actually you know 700 seats there was a fine dining restaurant over a 500 seat bistro and those kind of places no one wanted to go to because this one was actually underneath the queensboro bridge and that brings all the tower over from Queens to Manhattan. So it was a prime, it was built underneath the bridge. The, the bottom of the bridge was the top of the restaurant. And uh, so that became a major, major possible target. Um, so, you know, we had to really change the way we did business and um, just, just a heck of a lot of, of stress and strain. 
Greg Gates, you were uh, deployed to go there. What were, you know, as, as you got ready to go and as you, you know, you were making your way to New York from Indiana, I mean, what kind of thought process were you going through? We were trying to uh, prepare ourselves for what we may come across. Uh, there were uh, speeches made by task force members uh, that had some experience in mass casualty events, uh, trying to prepare us for uh, the finding of bodies, uh, the potential for finding survivors, uh, and uh, kind of develop a mental preparedness as you were, uh, as we were traveling. Uh, people were trying to get some sleep when they could, but most everybody was. Uh, for lack of better term, so amped that uh, sleep was not something that came easily. So when did you actually pull into the city and what were, what were the first things that you, you saw? We arrived in the city uh, and did somewhat of a survey before we actually broke into two teams. Uh, one team went back to uh, the convention center and set up camp, so to speak and the other team started the search process. Uh, there was, when we first got there, there were still a lot of civilian personnel that came out and assisted uh, in just passing buckets and picking up debris and moving it. Uh, a tremendous amount of dust in the air. Uh, the amount of dust is, is I couldn't describe it to, to be adequate. Uh, but the dust was on everything, and including us. Uh, they did, uh, I forget whether it was the second day or third day, sometime soon after we started operations on 12-hour shifts, they covered all the seats with plastic, uh, and we would uh, strip down once we got back to the convention center and decon, uh, get showers, clean up, and then... Uh, uh, get as much rest as we could to begin the next shift. Uh, but uh, once it rained, uh, and I forget which day it actually, what day it rained, uh, but when it rained, there was a lot more color to the uh, work area to ground zero uh, before everything had that uh, dust color. All right. Now, meanwhile, Jim, we're going to go back to you. You were in the Pentagon. You had, uh, I believe there were 30, 31 of you, maybe 33 of you counting the two people with the, with the arm, armed forces. Um, the plane had hit about 50 feet from where you were. So, you know, what was that like? What happened? How'd you get out of there? Okay. The... Uh... Uh, Undersecretary had said that she would uh, uh, had to cut her presentation short because she had to get to the ready room and talk with uh, about the issues. About nine thirty, she finished her presentation. The class was uh, paying attention to say well, this is first we'd heard about the the, the terrorists, but she went ahead and gave a, a presentation that she normally would have. About nine thirty, she uh, uh, she ended her, her presentation. Uh, the captain with her said, ma'am, we have to go. And she said, well, I'm going to take one question first. And uh, she took one question, took about four or five minutes to answer it. And just as she was finishing her answering the question, which actually saved her life later on, we found out. But uh, just as soon as she finished it, all of a sudden, um, we, it, you more, we more felt than heard. Uh, there was no explosion. But it was more like a, I'd say more like uh, air rushing. It was more vroom kind of a sound. And things shook. Uh, I can remember the ceiling tiles shaking a little bit, the, the light fixture shaking. And uh, a little bit of smoke started coming in from the registers uh, around, the, around the edge of the floor. But then it was very calm. And it quit. And the undersecretary made a comment. She said, well, it must be... A, a terrorist attack. We need to get out of here. And everyone went very calmly, closed all their briefcases, put all their stuff away. And within a minute or two, all of a sudden, then uh, uh, more smoke started coming in. 
and you could tell things were getting worse. So in order to get to that conference room we were in, uh, at the Pentagon, you always go into the center of the Pentagon to the A-ring, find your corridor, go out to the E-ring, which is the farthest one out, and then uh, advance from there. We had gone down a long corridor from the A-ring to the E-ring, and then we had turned and gone probably 120 feet down a uh, uh, just a narrow corridor that was eight foot wide, eight foot tall, uh, to where the conference room was. There was a wall, there was a wall there that's the, the, at the end of that uh, corridor and a stairwell that went down, and our conference room door was right beside it. Uh, so as they started leaving, they uh, immediately thought they would go back the way they came. So they started back down the hallway, and I was at the very end, of the, almost the end of the group, because I always sit in the back of the class and kind of watch what was going on in charge of logistics. And within just a few moments, uh, uh, the people in the front of the class, the undersecretary, they yelled and said, you can't go that way. Uh, they had run into three people who were actually were working in that wing. And those people had said, when they met him, they said, you can't go out that way, the way we came in. You have to go back to the stairs. So all the class that were out there turned to go to the stairwell. Uh, two people uh, in front of me, there were two men there, tried to open the doors to the stairs. And they had trouble getting it open. They finally were able to open it up. It was a solid door. They finally opened it up that most of the stairs were gone and it was full of smoke. So they said, we can't go that way. You've got to go back the other way. So they turned and started back down the corridor again. And just as I got out in the hallway, smoke had started filling this corridor. And uh, you learn in first grade that uh, uh, if you have smoke, you uh, you stay low and cover your mouth. And I can remember taking my handkerchief out of my pocket and putting it over my mouth and nose. Um, I did not get on the knees or anything, but I actually did bend over as far as I could because the smoke was starting to fill the top. And about that time, someone yelled and said, watch your step, which we thought was puzzling because uh, uh, this was a flat corridor. And so probably, oh, maybe 30 or 40 feet, maybe 50 feet away from the classroom, all of a sudden, I came to that step. And it was down about 12 to 18 inches, I would guess. It was, as I recall, it was... It was not an easy step. You actually had to kind of jump down a little. And what we discovered later was that is the was the expansion joint of the building where the wedge had actually started to fall, but had not fallen completely yet. Just after that step, uh, the emergency lights then went out. And at this point, it was pretty much totally black, totally dark. Uh, I remember touching the side wall. The side wall was hot. And... Uh, uh, Things got very dark. Everyone stayed calm. Uh, I can remember thinking to myself, very honestly, that uh, uh, well, this is this is it. Uh, I'm not going to be able to get out of here. This is the only way out, and I don't know what's ahead. But I was very calm. It was a very calm feeling. I thought about the wife and family and the girls, and and uh, but you just kept moving. And within a few, anywhere from thirty seconds to five minutes, I have no idea about timing. Uh, we heard a voice. Different people thought they heard different things, but what I recall is hearing is a man saying, uh, there's light at the end of the tunnel, follow my voice, grab the person in front of you and keep moving. And I remember reaching out and grabbing someone. It was a man because I had a sport coat. Uh, I wasn't at the end of the line because someone grabbed me in the back. And you, you continued to stay low and kept moving. And uh, within a minute or two, all of a sudden, you could actually see a little bit of light down in this, uh, into this corridor. And it started getting lighter. And we got to the end of the corridor, and there was a man crouched down in a uniform at the edge of the thing, yelling, keep moving, keep moving. And there was two other gentlemen in Navy uniforms also standing beyond him, directing us back down the corridor uh, uh, to, the, to the center A ring, where they then got us out of the building. Um, so we didn't know quite where we were. We, uh, uh, we finally got out to the parking lot and, uh, I got everyone together and checked their names off to make sure everyone was accounted for. And just as we were doing that, we heard this loud, uh, sort of a crash and not necessarily an explosion, but a loud crash. And we found out later that was when the wedge collapsed that uh, we had escaped over. Uh, we didn't know that at the time. We just heard the, heard the noise. Uh, so the afternoon, uh, we, we, we took us about an hour and a half to get back to the hotel. We had to walk back. Uh, 
obviously metros were shut down, everything was shut down, traffic. And it took us about an hour and a half to get back to the hotel. And uh, and when we did, uh, you know, a lot of things happened. But one of the things was I was trying to get everyone together so we could talk to them and make sure everyone was okay and, uh, and start talking about how we was going to get back. But uh, like everyone else, I turned the TV on. And uh, the TV showed the uh, wedge missing from the Pentagon. And uh, I was interviewed by several people, including Bob, who called. And I said, I actually don't know where we were because I know I know we were close. And I know that we walked over an area that was really black and dark and, and hot and smoky. But I really don't know where we were. I know we went counterclockwise. And actually, it wasn't until the next morning when we went downstairs uh, uh, to breakfast, the Washington Post had some schematics in the paper. And that is really the first time we realized that uh, the... Uh, area we crossed over where it got very black was directly over the plane and that the only escape route we had was that wedge and that wedge had started dropping already but that wedge was still in place and the noise we heard in the parking lot was when that wedge collapsed so somewhere between 15 and 20 minutes after we got out was uh, uh, was when that wedge actually collapsed and we have an email that we received a, a, a short time later. We, we were corresponding with the uh, uh, Christine Glatz, who was the uh, uh, engineer for the uh, Pentagon uh, uh, refurbishing. And she actually sent an email to us in response to a question that said, her, her, her exact words were, it is a miracle that the wedge did not collapse immediately because the girders that had been destroyed uh, caused the remaining girders to carry weight load two and three times what they were designed to carry. And she said there's there's no theoretical, no engineering reason why that building did not collapse immediately. But luckily, uh, it, it had collapsed about 12 to 18 inches, uh, but it had not collapsed fully. So uh, that was our escape route. That's how we got out, and uh, we finally got back to the hotel. I'm going to give our phone number or our, uh, our contact information again, then I'm going to turn it over to Sarah. If you have questions or comments, you can send them to us at news at indianapublicmedia.org. We're also on Twitter at Noon Edition. And I should say that, yes, indeed, I called. I, sometimes journalists get have some good fortune. My wife worked with Jim's wife. Um, I got Jim's cell phone number that day and talked to him right after he got back to the uh, hotel for a story for the uh, newspaper I was working for at the time. Sarah? Jim, did everyone in your group make it out okay? Yes. Everyone made it out? And they yeah. were very, they were amazingly, they were very mature, very calm. Uh, uh, the Undersecretary of the Navy actually called me later that day and wanted to make sure everyone got out. She, she apologized for having to kind of head off on her own, uh, but said she made a comment that she was so impressed about how how everyone stayed very calm, very orderly, uh, followed instructions about getting out, and she was just uh, very impressed with them. So they all got out that way, and they uh, no one was injured. And to my knowledge, no one had any uh, um, uh, after effects of, uh, uh, emotionally that, uh, that I'm aware of. It's really interesting because you said um, uh, someone made a comment that it must be a terrorist. And that's just something that I don't feel like as civilians that we commonly heard before 9-11. So um, how long was it before, before you knew what it, before you knew what had happened? Well, I say the undersecretary knew about the world trade center and she's the one that told us about the terrorist attack there. Um, but she assumed it was a bomb at the Pentagon and we didn't know it was a plane until we were actually out in the parking lot. And, and of course everyone was mumbling and everyone was talking, trying to find out what you could. And that's the first time that we had heard that it was actually a uh, plane that also had, that had hit the Pentagon. Back in New York, Greg Gates, you were starting to um, dig out and try to find people. So I'd like for you to talk a little bit about how surreal that must have been trying to, you know, that you could run into I would assume you could run into injured people. You could run into people who were dead. You could run into people who were alive that you needed to rescue. 
Yes, that's uh, that's our mission. Uh, we were there to try to rescue those that, that could be saved, those people that were, or our hopes were that we would find someone that uh, was in a location that they were protected, yet uh, they could not mean have a means of, of getting out on their own. Uh, unfortunately, for our time there, we were unable to find anybody that was still alive that was in the buildings at the time of the collapse. Most everybody got out that could get out, uh, they got out on their own. Uh, few people were actually rescued. Not that there weren't some, but most of that was done before we got there. Mm -hmm. One for both you and for Daniel Orr in New York, what was the, I mean, Daniel, you talked a little bit about the atmosphere and how people were sort of banding together, but from a, I guess from a political standpoint, I mean, this was a case where there were a lot of people that were confused that were uh, wondering, you know, were we under attack? Were we going to be, were there going to be more attacks? Um, what was the basic feeling like in New York in those days following the attacks? Well, being, being a, a restaurant guy, um, we were trying to help any way we could. Um, we were sending food down to the firefighters and to the people on the front line. Um, we organized to help people that were in the restaurant industry. Um, I actually knew Michael LaMonica, who was the um, executive chef at Windows on the World, which was on top of the, of the tower. And he'd actually taken an elevator down to get his, pick up some glasses he was having fixed when it happened. And, you know, he lost his whole crew. Um, so we were dealing with lots of situations like that, just within our own industry of trying to help others. And, and I think that a lot of people in the restaurant business, hospitality, I mean, that is what we do. We are caregivers and, and we try to, to give wherever we can. And um, it really brought the city together that way. Everyone was trying to support those frontline people. And um, it, was, it was amazing to see people gather and, and come together and do that. So Greg is one of the frontline people. Um, how important was that kind of support? Well, I, uh, <laughs> I did not know Dan uh, but I know of the location that Dan is speaking of, uh, where the uh, restaurants, the chefs uh, brought food down and had it available for us in a uh, storefront that had been significantly damaged. Uh, and Dan, maybe you're familiar with uh, what was known to us on the ground as the tarp. Yep, yep, absolutely. We uh, actually, by FEMA, we were not allowed to go in there to eat. Uh, the process of eating anything that wasn't supplied through FEMA lends the possibility to poisoning and so forth. But Dan, you'd be proud to know that many of us snuck over and under that tarp to partake of the kindness <laughs> that you all provided. Uh, it was yeah, I'm sure it was better than the rations. It absolutely was. <laughs> Thank you. Yes. So, Greg, again, from your standpoint as a firefighter, I mean, this must have had a very lasting impact on you. I mean, it's been 20 years now. I mean, is it something that sticks with you? It absolutely does. I'm confident that I can say it's it sticks with all of us uh, that were there. Uh, and anyone who's watched the events unfold on TV uh, at different levels, um, one of the hardest parts for us was arriving and talking to other New York firefighters about those that were either missing or known to be dead. Uh, we, our task force responded with New York uh, to Puerto Rico for a hurricane uh, sometime before this event and uh, got to know some of those folks and got to become quite, uh, quite good friends. Uh, and then to arrive and as we were walking through the 
the scene running into firefighters and asking, hey, have you heard about so-and-so? And then to be said, well, they're missing at this point, or he was in the bottom of Tower 2 when it fell and uh, passed. The, uh, uh, the remembrance of that uh, will probably live forever. And I, I hope we all never forget this day uh, and I appreciate efforts like this to make sure that others don't forget. All right, Sarah. Yeah, I, I want to ask Daniel Orr about that too. I mean, um, I'm sure in New York, everyone knows someone who was in the towers that day. Um, what about you personally? Well, um, being in the restaurant business, you know, everyone knows everybody. We're kind of a undercover family and there are lots of late night uh, chef driven restaurants that uh, everyone goes in after after service and so you meet people from all over the, the, the island. And um, yeah, uh, my friend Valerie had worked at the Window on the World. Um, luckily, she was working for me at the time, but she had so many connections with people at that restaurant. Um, you know, and a lot of a lot of places around that. I mean, all of those restaurants closed. All those they were really kind of clubby uh, lunch restaurants for a lot of the stockbrokers. Um, so I knew a lot of people that worked in those restaurants as well. Curious about um, again, Greg Gates. What were those shifts like that you were working? I mean, when did you when did you get an opportunity to to rest? On a typical day, uh, there would be a 12-hour uh, period where we would be uh, on site uh, and searching. Uh, we would take breaks uh, periodically, but at the end of the 12 hours, we would then take a bus ride back to the convention center, where, as I mentioned before, we would decon, get showered up, uh, for us, our first meal was, was breakfast, and then we would uh, attempt to get uh, typically three or four hours worth of sleep, and we'd be back up getting ready to go back down again. Uh, once we got back on the buses, we would be on site and ready to go, uh, and the day shift would then get on the buses and ride the buses back. Um, that's the, the typical day. Um, there was a group of people, uh, massage uh, therapists, that offered massages uh, to the folks at the uh, convention center. And typically that was a, a gateway into getting a little bit of rest. How did this change the the job of a, of being a firefighter? I mean, I'm I'm sure that you theoretically, you know, you always knew. Well, you know, we could be in a situation where we're running into a burning building and it's going to be really dangerous. But a lot of these firefighters had to know that the likelihood they'd make it out was perhaps pretty small. Absolutely. Uh, the men and women that went into that building to rescue those uh, that were trapped, especially above the fire floor, they knew they had a battle ahead of them and that the probability of making it out uh, was slim. Uh, the uh, attitude of those that went, uh, the photos that you see of those climbing the steps, it's obvious to the, in their faces, in their eyes, uh, that they knew that that was likely to be their last air climb. Uh, fortunately, there were a number of people that didn't make it out, uh, but unfortunately, so many lost their lives. I think people in public safety in general recognize the fact that when they leave for work in the morning, whether that's a firefighter, a police officer, or an EMS worker, that the chance that they won't come home is there. 
I think that, that uh, in, in my opinion, the, the real heroes are those significant others, uh, the wives, the husbands, children, the parents of those people that put the uniform on and go out each day. In the academy, you're taught that it's not whether you're going to get hurt, but it's how bad you get hurt and that that hurt could mean death. Uh, the public safety personnel certainly get to experience the stimulation of the job. Those significant others, the people that I call heroes, don't get to experience the stimulation, but they experience all of the horror of the outcome. Thank you. Greg, did you know when you responded that this wouldn't be so much of a, a rescue mission as just a, a recovery mission? No, I think uh, I was pretty naive along those lines. I thought that uh, there could possibly be some pockets where uh, people could be trapped and that we could tunnel into where they were and uh, be able to rescue them out of that situation. Uh, I don't remember exactly which day it was, but there was a day of uh, coming to grips with the idea that we aren't likely going to find anyone alive. Uh, the ground zero, you hear a lot of people talk about smells, odors. Uh, there was an odor uh, one day that... Uh, was part of that realization that we weren't going to find anybody else alive. Jim Boer, I, I know, you know, I, as, as we both mentioned, I mean, we talked on the phone that day and you had had a, you know, you knew that you'd escaped from something that was, um, you know, very, very dangerous. But when you go back and you look at, uh, some people might be able to conjure up in their in their mind's eye a picture of that section that wedge out of the out of the Pentagon and that that big piece that the floor from from that um, fifth floor that's just lying down at an angle in that wedge and that was your escape route. Um, when did you kind of come to grips with the fact or? really understand the fact that the 30, 31 people from Indiana University of Crane came within about 10 or 15 minutes of actually not making it out of their lives? I think the realization pretty much hit us all Wednesday morning. Uh, the Embassy Suites has a, a large atrium area where you congregate for breakfast. And when I came down for breakfast early Wednesday morning, uh, it was dead, almost dead silence. And uh, there were probably 10 or 15 people already there. And they had the newspapers out, uh, spread out looking at them. And it was, it was clear at that point that, that that's the first time I think everyone really realized just how close they were uh, to, to not being there, to not, not, not getting out. Because earlier on, we just didn't know. Uh, you know we, we knew it was black. We knew what we went through. But we didn't realize how close it was. And once we realized that, that uh, we actually had gone over that section. Uh, it was a very sobering thing thinking about, well, wh why did we get out but others didn't? You know, why, why did that floor stay up like it did uh, as long as it did? Because it, it probably shouldn't have. Uh, there was a real strong realization at that point that, uh, that, that we, were, we were blessed, that we were the lucky ones because the ones that didn't, uh, there was a lot of people lost their lives and those are the ones that I feel for. But we... We, we we made it out, not sure why we did, but uh, uh, very, very, very glad that we did do it. But uh, I think that Wednesday morning was the first time we really sort of came to grips. And as you talk to people around the tables, uh, uh, I think they all realized that they were within 15 minutes of, uh, of not making out because it had that collapsed, the stairwell was gone as well. Uh, there was absolutely no other escape from, the, from our area. I mean, that was... There was no other way out but those two, and uh, had they both been shut off, we would have uh, uh, we would have not made it out. Have you been back to the Pentagon since? Uh, I was back one time. Uh, have not been in the Pentagon since. Uh, I did go back one time, uh, actually the next February, 
the Undersecretary of the Navy had been able to uh, find the three people that got us out. Uh, and uh, we had a, what we called a hero luncheon in February. Uh, everyone from the class that was there and those uh, three uh, people from the Navy and, uh, and their spouses uh, were all there. And uh, uh, I did take a, a, a metro ride out and just stood around and looked at the Pentagon because uh, you, know, you could see the hole was missing because nothing, they started cleaning up at that point, but not, not a lot had been done. Uh, one interesting thing was that we asked the uh, people from the Navy, the, the three people, the commander and two captains, why did you come to this floor? Because uh, they were on the fourth floor. This was on the fifth floor. Uh, after the remodeling, this is the first time that that classroom had been used. No one expected anyone to be in that corridor. And so we asked them, well, why did you come to that corridor and start yelling? And to a man, they all said, we really don't know. We never talked about it. We just sort of looked at each other. All three of us walked up the floor to the fifth floor and walked to that corridor and started yelling. We really don't have any answer as to why we did it or, or anything. We just did it. Well, it's been 20 years ago now since then. I, I think about, uh, I'm going to ask all three of you this question. We'll start with Daniel and go to Greg and then go to Jim. But, you know, all three of you um, are, you know, it's, it's 20 years. You have to look back on it. There are college students at IU, people that go to Daniel's restaurant, um, people that are in SPIA that were, you know, they, they don't remember it. It, you know, it's hard to believe, but they don't, you know, they were one, two, maybe not even born yet. Then I'm sure, Greg, you run into people that are in their teens and early 20s, too. How can, I mean, what what would you say about them, about the significance of that event and the significance of that day in terms of, um, you know, what, what they should know about it? Daniel? Well, um, I think that it really brought the country together in a lot of ways. Um, you know, I think people forgot politics for a little while and helped each other out. And, um, you know, we came together to, to make everyone feel better. And, and I think that, you know, now we need to, to do that with uh, whatever, you know, COVID and, and different instances that we're in now. We need to remember that, that, bind, that binding moment of 9-11 to um, share with the younger people and show them that we can come together, we can work as a country, and we're all going to be better for it. And so that's what I would would say to young people. Um, I uh, did, you know, for a long time we were told not to go down uh, to to the sites, and um, when we finally were allowed to go down, I remember going and looking at the destruction, um, but I also remember. The, the, the graffiti, the love, the thanks that was put on the walls and the, the construction uh, barriers and everything, um, you saw so much passion, so much love for not only the first responders and the, the people who, who died, but, but a, a whole community that was affected. And um, I didn't go back for a long time. I moved to Anguilla. Um, I really got to a point where I needed to get out of Manhattan, so I went down to Anguilla with the Cuisinart Company. And um, when I went back to New York, and uh, just probably three years ago, and, and saw the site and the way they've rebuilt it, I think it really honors what happened there. It's 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 a beautiful and very elegant uh, remembrance of this this date that we're celebrating tomorrow. And I would suggest that young people go out there and visit that um, because it is uplifting and there can be, you know, life after such tragedy happens. And um, I think that everyone should try to get out there. If you're, if you're in New York, try to get down there and visit that site. And uh, there's, there, there's so much to do in that area. So I think that's a good way for people to remember if they, if they are in the area. All right. Thanks, Daniel. Uh, Greg Gates. I, too, would like to comment about the uh, graffiti. Uh, initially, the graffiti had a tremendous amount of hate, uh, along with the praise for the country and uh, the identifying of the 
murderous thugs that did this horrible thing. Uh, and then as time went on, there was more things written that for no other term but to use what Dan said, love. Uh, and I think uh, one of the greatest things I was able to take from this whole thing was that uh, early on when civilians were assisting public safety on the pile, there were people of the same nationality, the same race, the same religion, helping those people working the pile. And I think knowing that this terrible thing was not done by a race of people, by a country, by a religious group, uh, but just it was done by murderous thugs uh, that we should keep in mind that people are different and that we should still respect, love those that are different than us and perhaps have a different opinion. All right. Thanks, Greg. And Jim Boer, you have about 30 seconds to wrap up. What, what would you like uh, these students at SPIA now to, to know about this? Well, one of the things I, you, you, you mentioned the significance of it. Uh, I give uh, quite a few presentations. Uh, I give one Wednesday. I got one Sunday coming up. The first thing I ask is, where were you when you first heard about Pearl Harbor being bombed? And there's older people that do. Where were you when you first heard that President Kennedy was shot? And the third one is, where were you when the World Trade Center was hit? To me, those three things in recent history are the only three things that I know of that are so significant to our culture that everyone that was alive, they know exactly where they were when they first heard that. So it's very important for our history. I really like what Dan said about the about the youth and different different people. Um, I think it did pull the country together for a while. Uh, it showed that politics were, uh, you know, were pushed to the back. Unfortunately, it didn't last very long, but it but it lasted for a while. But just the resilience of the United States and what we can do if we work together. All right, thank you very much. I want to thank our three guests today: Jim Burr, Greg Gates, and Daniel Orr. For our co-host, Sarah Whitmire, our producers, Holden Abshear and Benta Boutier and engineer John Bailey. I'm Bob Salzberg. Thanks for listening to Noon Edition. Production support for Noon Edition comes from Smithville. Fiber internet, streaming TV, home security, and automation in southern Indiana. More information at smithville.com. And from Integrity First Insurance, provider of Erie Insurance for all your auto, home, life, and business insurance needs. More information at 812-269-8897 or integrityfirstinsuranceservices.com. And from Bloomington Health Foundation, partnering with local organizations and citizens to invest in programs that address our community's health needs. Bloomington Health Foundation, improving health and well-being takes a community. More at bloomhf.org. Support for WFIU comes from Eskenazi Museum of Art, presenting Albrecht Dürer, Apocalypse and Other Masterworks from Indiana University Collections, on view through December 19th.